Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Well, I got my second booster shot this week. Yay, at this point, it's almost become routine, hadn't it? Uh, you know, uh, at least for vulnerable adults like me. Now, uh, here we are entering the next phase of the pandemic, and the big question is, what next? Now, here at First Unitarian Society, we have been following national trends. In March of this year, for example, 4.5 million American workers quit their jobs. And here at FUS, a couple of our key staff members joined the great resignation. It's the new normal, I suppose. We're faced with decisions about how to reconfigure our staff hours. All of our job descriptions are pre-COVID. How do we reinstate office hours? Is anybody going to show up? When and how much to work from home? And what we go back to and what we just say, you know, we were wasting our time about that anyway. Well, and then there's this great unknown called inflation. As someone tasked with working for FUS leadership, uh, making decisions that will affect the future of FUS and the future of humanism, I am keeping my ear to the ground, as it were, listening and watching our new reality taking shape. And like everybody else, I'd like to know what happens next. My firm conviction is that the last thing anybody needs to do is go back to normal. And there's a couple of reasons that I say that. One reason, uh, the, because the last so-called normal was March of 2020. Now, in case you haven't been keeping track, we are now in May of 2022, and I know the pandemic is screwed with everyone's uh, a sense of uh, time, but that's a long time later. And guess what? The new normal would be a different normal now, wouldn't it? Time did not stand still, even though it got weird for us. Now, the second reason and a larger point is the pandemic has changed many, many people in the way that they think. People have reevaluated their values, finding the old normal lacking. Hence, the great resignation and new ways of thinking about how to work and to live. As people who value exploring values, that's what we do around here, we believe in living consciously, after all, and I think humanists and Unitarian Universalists can say, go, folks, reevaluate those values. Still, we have to stay realistic about what is changing and what is not changing and how much agency, free will, any of us has in the matter. Because bottom line here is that there is no normal to go back to. Attempts at getting back to normal will fail as they always fail after major social transitions. Why? Well, for exactly the same reason that Renaissance fairs don't really look like the Renaissance and high school back to the 80s days don't really look like the 1980s. 
Trying to return to normal is like trying to time travel. It's fun to imagine, but you can't actually do it. And we all know what happens if you go back, you might kill your own grandparents, and then it gets to be very fuzzy. (laughs) Why am I so sure that we live in a transitional moment? Well, one of the reasons is because I believe in the concept of story, narrative. And one thing about real life story is that it goes on. We can't rewind even if we would like to. It just keeps going. Now, narrative does keep us sane. It's how we access who we are. We are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And the fact is, the old narratives are like those old wineskins of biblical metaphor. You can't put new wine in old wineskins, and we can't tell a tale of what's happening today by pretending that all of these months have not happened. So, what do we do next? How do we go about writing the story that will become next? And today I want to invite us, as the saying goes nowadays, to get all meta about it. Meta, it's a useful word. It's a step back, it's a view from several feet up. Still getting meta is not about attempting to be above and beyond or superior to questions. Rather, getting meta about it is opening ourselves up to the nuances of the issues so that we can really look at them. Yeah, I mean, Meta is everywhere nowadays. I mean, it's the name of the parent company of Facebook now, right? That doesn't make sense to me. But there's meta narrative, there's metaphysics, there's metadata, there's metafiction, there's metaverse, there's meta key, uh, and there's a whole lot of other meta somethings. Meta is hot. And you know, it is a Greek word for you etymology fans like Nancy. Yes, I know. Yes, meta is above or beyond. Nowadays, META has even become an acronym, Most Effective Tactics Available. How about that? And finally, as we all look around us at a new reality that requires a new story, that is what we need, isn't it? The most effective tactics available. META and narrative add up to that big story that large numbers of people tell themselves. It's the broad strokes of a worldview and how each of us makes meaning out of the kind of just things that happen randomly, sometimes it seems. The story is what we do with events to make them make sense. Now, yeah, uh, postmodern philosophers talked about the death of the meta-narrative, but by that they did not mean that meta-narratives are dead, but rather that they are bifurcating and trifurcating and quadricating, which is not a word, but that you can tell by the etymology what it means. In our time, even before the pandemic, We have a whole bunch of micro-narratives that sometimes add up to a meta-narrative. I know it gets a little confusing at some, but somehow those micros add up to a a sort of a big one, but sometimes it's a little bit off target. For example, 
What does patriotism mean in the larger story of being a citizen of the United States? That's become kind of complicated. The old question is, uh, you know, is resistance patriotic? What is required of us if, as citizens, we deeply believe government must be fundamentally changed? That's always been a question. How do we face up to the national story, the meta-narrative? And as you all know, that kind of question goes on and on if you start to think about your own ethics. But still, even though there are oodles and gobs of conflicting micro-narratives, I think there are, broadly speaking, two meta-narratives, not only here in the U.S., but in many places around the world. And we've been seeing it a lot in the news, the meta-narrative of liberal democracy and the meta-narrative of nationalism. Now, sure, that's an oversimplification, and the more oversimplified being the progressive versus conservative angle. Now, we all know this, of course, but as the American form of this bifurcation manifests in Christian nationalism, those of us with a secular and liberal viewpoint can't help feeling a bit of concern about that. And we can't avoid worry about the survival of what we call liberal democracy itself. The pandemic has called into question, for example, the American narrative that all Americans love freedom and democracy. Freedom and democracy are not the same thing, are they? And are they competing goods? Another narrative, the civil rights and civil liberties are an onward and upward and ever accelerating American value. Oop, nope, we have seen that we can turn around and go backwards on a dime. That narrative wasn't true. The pandemic has revealed that some stories we have been telling ourselves are mere fantasy. Going meta helps us realize these kinds of realities. And as I see it, humanism itself is one of those meta things. It's meta religion. It's meta philosophy. We humanists see the human religious impulse and the many things that the human religious impulse has created. Uh, I don't know, scripture, thinking and living uh, according to scriptures, writing them. Uh, and what about all of the architecture around us? All of those things are creations of the human imagination. That's the story we humanists tell of human experience. Seen as such, human religions and philosophies can be placed side by side with other human accomplishments. Yeah, religion, yeah, Christianity, yeah, Hinduism, and farming, and governments, and economies, and cities, and transportation, and on and on and on. All part of the fertile human imagination. With our narrative of human achievement, we humanists are at one extreme in this bifurcation. Of course, we're on one margin of US society. We are on the extreme saying that each individual human being matters and has rights and responsibilities. We humanists are on the extreme saying that we need democracy to mitigate human passions in the heat of the moment so that human beings have the time to fix human problems, because only humans can do that. We humanists insist upon the secular value of freedom of conscience in all matters, from government to relationships to religion. On the other extreme, 
of U.S. society is the meta-narrative of the Christian God who founded the United States with a special mission to save humanity from itself and usher in the second coming of Christ. The way to achieve this goal is, so goes this particular meta-narrative, by radically purifying American society according to biblical standards, getting the nation right with God, as the saying goes, and creating a Christian theocracy that enforces right-wing interpretations of Christianity. Think Handmaid's Tale. Those are the extremes. Most Americans, I would say, fall somewhere between those two poles. Uh, we've got those dueling meta-narratives, and we plug into them, but how much does everyone really believe them? That's where things begin to get complicated. For example, mainline Protestants and liberal Catholics agree with us on almost all social issues, and many are completely secular in their notions of good and evil and the gods. Go ask an ELCA Lutheran if uh, uh, natural selection is real, you know? Yes, yes, it is. Almost every humanist and Unitarian Universalist agrees with those words that I read this morning from the British psychologist Margaret Knight, the unholy Mrs. Knight, that morals are not about what God says to do, but rather about getting along with each other. As we see it, morals don't need religion, though religion needs morals. But there is a difference about the chicken and the egg, which comes first. The human moral imagination created human ethics, and then religions came along later to the game. Where you think morality comes from, its source makes a big difference in your meta-narrative. As humanists see it, human morals are foundational and evolving and the various human religions are just filigree that have kind of glommed on later. Still, for those of us with a secular meta-narrative or a re liberal religious meta-narrative, what we have to do becomes radically clear. First and foremost, we must participate in and encourage liberal democracy. And we must compromise, yeah, a few of our values, maybe a few of our micro-narratives in order to achieve that critical mass that can actually change the direction of the United States. But as I said, where morals come from is a small and even an academic point when we consider, consider what we have to lose if we don't begin to figure out how to come up with a compromise. We can work with people who embrace liberal interpretations of religions such as Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and so on. There are liberals in all of those religions. For example, the liberal Protestant theologian Paul Tillich said, quote, the first duty of love is to listen. Hmm. I think a large number of us, despite our philosophies, can get on board that particular train. The first duty of love is to listen. The bifurcation of U.S. society into progressive and conservative is painting with a very, very broad brush indeed. But humanists are people of nuance, and so I th we can find common ground with those who don't agree with us on everything. When we go meta, 
we can see that moral values remain moral values, whether we tell ourselves origin stories about Adam and Eve or Jesus or about social evolution. They're all stories. Which brings us back to META as an acronym. Most effective tactics available. A most effective tactic available is reaching out to those who believe that human beings can fix human problems. And yeah, a lot of our Presbyterian, Lutheran, and Episcopalian friends do agree with us on that. Atheists and agnostics and skeptics can be holier than thou, just like anybody else. We can be exactly as sanctimonious as too many religious people can be. And I do believe that saving our national values is more important than being 100% consistent in your philosophy and ethics. Everyone needs to cool our jets around being pure and outpuring others. Allow me to state the obvious. Polarization is about othering, and othering creates polarization. It's a cycle. It just goes round and round. It is no doubt difficult to see the good of a meta-narrative that others us, or others those we love. Yeah, that's hurtful. But they're big, and they can be dismantled. But here's the thing. Moral outrage is a great motivator, isn't it? We've seen that in the last couple of years. We can't have wars or politics without moral outrage. But moral outrage is another feedback loop. I am morally outraged that your moral outrage creates to me a moral outrage. Or, yeah, it's hard to figure, isn't it? I am morally outraged that you are morally outraged that my moral outrage is morally outrageous. Or something. I really can't figure it out. But here's the question. Can we work on some of our micro-narratives going meta about it and finding common ground with those others? For example, one of the big questions of our day, abortion. Now, let's get serious and accept some nuance. Those who adamantly oppose abortion, we'll call them the conservatives, are not adamantly dedicated to taking away the right to choose. That's not their focus, and we really need to recognize that. For them, the individual right to choose is collateral damage. That's not the story they tell themselves about what they are doing. And those who adamantly support the right to choose, the progressives, let's call us, we are not about terminating the lives of fetuses. That is not our narrative. That is collateral damage. We focus on just one thing, and that is the right to choose. Yes, we know the consequences, but that's not our focus. So you see, we have two groups looking two completely different ways, two different narratives. But these narratives lead to othering and polarization. Getting meta about it, we can see how the two narratives don't meet on any sort of common ground. They are mutually exclusive stories. That's a problem. This leads to the muddle that we live in today. But I go back to one of the cornerstones of humanism. People matter more than ideas. P 
people matter more than ideas. Besting an opponent, but leaving that person as an opponent, which is what happened with the Supreme Court decision of 1973, it's going to lead to payback, which is what we see happening in the US today. We didn't get meta about it. How can we find ways to untell some of the stories that are destroying the US social fabric? It's not easy, but I think it's possible. It's hard to see the narratives that we live inside as narratives. No, it's truth. Everything I think is, has to be true, right? Well, by way of conclusion, I want to look at the example of the British writer G.K. Chesterton. Some of you know him as the, the writer of the Father Brown Mysteries. He was known in his day, early 20th century, as a Christian and as British as British could be and a conservative. He eventually, late in life, converted to Roman Catholicism, and some people think he ought to be made a saint. One of Chesterton's best friends was the Irish, British, British, Irish, Irish, playwright George Bernard Shaw, a social progressive who toyed with communism, socialism, atheism, and agnosticism. In other words, his best friend had a meta-narrative that was completely opposite. So, they agreed to disagree. In 1924, Chesterton wrote this, quote, the modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives, 1924, right? The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from ever being corrected. Thus, we have two great types, the advanced person who rushes us, rushes us into ruin and the retrospective person who admires the ruins. This, he wrote, is called the balance or mutual check in our Constitution. Chesterton's words do make some sense as they deflate those meta-narratives, don't they? Contradictions getting meta about it. Listen to Chesterton's words again, quote, the business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from being corrected. Thus, we have two great types, the advanced person who rushes us into ruin and the retrospective person who admires the ruins. That's getting meta about it, I think. It is a warning and an encouragement both, I think. Can the progressives and the conservatives change the stories that we tell ourselves? Can progressives and conservatives change the meta-narratives that drive this devastating cycle of ruin and excuses? Right now, it's just going round and round. Yes, as the US nears the one million mark of dead from this pandemic, the world has changed. There is no normal to return to. The old narratives do not show us any way forward, and maybe they never did. I invite us all to get meta about it, to strive to love and to listen, and to join in creating a brand new story. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism, 
and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.